Allison, I come before you today with a very, very solemn question. Oh, I'm ready. So as you know, we watched the Molly movie for today's episode. And I guess just in light of recent events, I would just love to hear from you using only a song title by one Ms. Comrade Spears. What is your review of this movie? Well, in light of another cinematic masterpiece, been thinking about Crossroads. Sure, I think sure. we're seeing someone who is not a girl and not yet a woman, as you might say. Interesting. Yes, I do use that phrase inappropriately and probably far too much in everyday life. I was going to actually say toxic. Yeah, I yeah, I mean, there's some airplane action in this film and <laughs> Ooh, oof. Okay, <laughs> let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Still Allison, I have been waiting for this episode. You know, these past two weeks, can't believe we finally made it here. I'm almost speechless after having watched this film, and yet here I am with things to say. How are you? I think there's been a two-year lead-up to us watching this film. You got me the DVD of this actually years ago. I've been saving it, cherishing it. Did I use that DVD to watch it? No, I don't have a DVD player. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much, though, for the gift. I did not. You know what? You're welcome. That's on me. (laughs) I didn't time that right. You know, like, that's on me. It's with my CD-ROMs. So I, you know, was thrilled to to click that purchase button on a website that we shall not name. They don't need wow. the free advertising. Certainly don't. It's It's been wonderful. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. I know there's a lot of news in the American girl world, but, you know, um, did I have to watch this movie thrice to fully absorb it? Yeah. Oh, wow. You, yeah. you put yourself through this three times. <laughs> Interesting. (laughs) I was like screaming at various times. I kept saying to Anna, I don't know why Anna had the remote when I should have, but for my own purposes, I kept needing to pause this movie to take freeze frame, like to take pictures. And as you know, we both live in captions on households, like for this purpose. I love to pause a movie or a TV show, take a picture of like what I consider to be like a foundational line. And there were just so many in this movie that was like, Anna, pause it. And we had to go back. And it was like, so I probably ended up watching it probably twice in the course of watching it once, but it's just stayed in my consciousness. Um, Did I have a nightmare about a plane crash after seeing this film? I'll call it film. I'll give it that respect. Yes, I did. I think we've all just barely made it through to this film. I did ask our Instagram followers if this was the most iconic Molly film or the the most iconic film of the American Girl universe. And folks were pretty divided. It was about as divided as the last American election, which is sad and scary. So close to 50-50. I'll share the full results. But if you said no, I asked you to tell us why. And for a lot of people, I, I have to give them credit. A few folks specifically specifically mentioned Shailene Woodley, who's been in the news a lot. So I respect that. Um, They also called out specific lines from the Felicity movie. Like, it's not what you think. Okay, I was going to say, (laughs) that is the most iconic scene. Never mind an American Girl film, possibly in any movie I've ever seen. (laughs) Or this isn't what you think. And like the believability with which Shailene Woodley, as as a young actor playing a character in both 
And knowing in her mind that probably she, Shailene, and Felicity, neither one of them understands what they mean by it's not what you think. And she still <laughs> goes 110 for it. It's like, give her a retrospective Oscar. Like, just do it. Yeah. I mean, the breakout stars that came out of the Samantha universe, sure. uh, Uncle Guard, who really has had a revival on TikTok. Yeah. I get it. But I, I it. also think people who just want to make us happy and gave us a vote of yes. You know what? I've I would have voted. I would have I can't say it's the best one, but Molly Ringwald holds a very special place in my cultural imagination. So I give her like a wide berth. Like she can do I don't want to say she can do no wrong, but she did do this film. She is not wrong in it. No. And unfortunately it doesn't give her as much to do like we'll get into this as probably we would have liked, but I don't know, Allison. This this movie took me to a place like I don't know. I I was staring into <laughs> space. I had to stop, and you know, it was a lot. It was a lot. So it was set in Jefferson, Illinois, as are the books, but I think it really existed in a different time sphere universe. I do appreciate the heavy hitters that they've pulled in for the maternal figures in all of these films. Like it. The stakes go up every single time. Um, you know, we've gone from our last film was Mia Farrow. Previously, we had Marsha Gay Harden. A few wow. people did respond to our poll and just said, Marsha. And I said, I respect that. I take that as a proper answer to yeah. this inquiry. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it's like you can't do not make me choose between the moms in these films. Like I can't and will not do it. I just won't. Like, no. they're the big, you you just pit, like picture Pleasant in her office, and she's like, the they come in, they're like, we want to do the Molly movie. Like, what's our budget? Like, cast, what are we thinking? Like, dream cast. They pull out, like, the biggest child stars in the world at that moment, and Pleasant's like, uh-uh, no. You get one name, and it will be the mom. Yeah, this cast is, is big. Uh, it has, you know, quite the range. I will say once again, for an American Girl film, a lot of Canadian stars, which we'll talk about in, in depth, sure. I presume. Before we do that, so we've had some questions and there's a lot of conversation online about other kinds of parental figures, which is some folks from the Kira books. Yes, that's right. So we actually were interviewed by Yahoo about this. Um, shout out to the writer who interviewed us, who's very sweet. And basically the premise of these books is that she goes to Australia to visit her two great aunts who are a gay couple and they own their own possibly illegal wildlife refuge, question mark. I have not investigated that piece of it. But the fact that this is the first book in which we have overt or openly gay characters has caused quite a bit of controversy online. And so I guess like we just want to speak to that for a second because so many of you have reached out to us and asked us to kind of talk about this on the show. Yeah, so there are some kind of different cultures, I think, in worlds of fandom. And I think a lot of people who listen to this, maybe maybe they don't participate in some of those fandoms because they're not actively seeking out new accessories or they're not part of kind of the shopping or the buy, sell, trade communities that exist around American Girl. Or they're not part of parent groups or that's just, you know, not where they are in life. 
life. But there are a few very large organizations that have mobilized to push for a boycott. They have been very unsupportive, but I think there's also just been a lot of toxic and hateful discourse around this particular character. And a lot of it has come out in language that these aunts are not appropriate characters, right? That this fact about them is is somehow inappropriate or it's introducing sexuality too young, which as we've talked about before, there are multiple characters in all of these books who go through very clear elements of the life cycle, right? We have people being born. We have people getting married. We have people entering into the household. If you think that Kirsten didn't hear things in that cabin, I can't oh help God. you. Oh my no, God, ser- Allison. What? I'm being <laughs> serious. Go there in my head. You're right though. Yes, of course. But I think, you know, it's it's ahistorical to imagine that families had these very tidy boundaries that they didn't have around how adults relate to each other. But it's also this projection as if no no romantic relationships are part of the stories at all. Or that we somehow like that there's a narrative of progress around our cultural morality. So that, in other words, like you know, we've always been, or like there's almost like this trans historical attachment to what people, certain people consider what morality should look like, what the family should look like, how people should behave around sex. So for example, I know from reading Laurel Thatcher Ulrich that there were quite a few out of wedlock pregnancies in colonial America. And that came as a real surprise to certain people who I was reading that book alongside who just had always believed, I guess, in their minds, especially in the past, even more people would not be having having had sex before marriage, for example, that this kind of morality, this thing that they took as a given had always existed. And in fact, like we're living through a, a decline of morality in their mind. And of course, that is not true. Um, But I think this projection of certain people's cultural values onto what they think children can understand or handle is completely inappropriate and, in fact, dangerous itself. And um, I'm deeply not here for that. And, you know, when I first read this news as a queer person, you know, like, I don't want to get too deep into my own history, but I think as someone who is a late bloomer in that part of my life, partly that was due to the fact that I was raised in a family where nobody talked about gay people. My parents were not homophobic, but you might say that by not making that a clear, you know, by not making that a visible um, part of our world, by not openly talking about being gay as not only an acceptable thing, but affirming it and saying that would be great or like that's completely fine and showing us models of how diverse the world actually is, you know, it really signaled to me that that was something I should be ashamed of or was not an option for me. So had I been a younger person and seen read in a book, not saying endorsing like, you know, everyone should be gay. That's not what Mm -hmm. this is about. And it's about just showing the world as it is. And maybe a young girl, young boy reading this book might, you know, something might resonate with them in that moment, just seeing those characters. And I so wish I had had that for myself. So to see these people criticizing that and talking about it as dangerous, like it makes me deeply sad. It's also, I think, such a disservice in some ways to places where the brand has told rich and compelling stories that show that families look different for people, like thinking about the way that Nellie and her sisters are incorporated into a family that is very much what you might not think of for the height of the Edwardian era, right? They, they, you know, Nellie is not living with her mother and her father. She, you know, we don't even need to get into Uncle Guard and his life, but- (sighs) They are living with a young couple 
who have decided that they want to raise children that, you know, they have brought in by choice to their family. Right. So there's all these models, like even thinking about the way that Addie, you know, like creates community and thinks about family very differently. We have talked before that the parental situations vary quite a lot within these books. So I think to say like, this is suddenly a shocking development, it's really not. Really not at all. And I think the idea of chosen family is so important, especially now as like grown women who have grown up reading books that so center friendship. It should come as no surprise that chosen family in the form of friends that we view as family or, you know, other kinds of relationships that might take the place of a nuclear family or be an important supplement to it you know, are important to talk about these book in these books and model. And we just had a really, really fun watch along where we watched um, A League of Their Own, which is one of my mm-hmm. all-time favorite movies. And of course, I did cry multiple times, even though I've seen <laughs> it many times. Um, but, you know, something that I was thinking kind of with sadness at the end of the movie was, you know, there's no queer characters in that movie. And we know from the women who played in that league that they had what we would now call queer or gay relationships. So to not have that in that movie, even looking back, never mind that it's all white women, but for that one scene where a black woman throws mm. the ball back to Gina Davis's character, it's like, yeah, these are this is why representation matters. And as we were saying off air before we started recording, it's not just representation of different sexuality or gender performance or identity or um race or different economic standpoint, all of those matter so much. And it's also diversity in terms of showing women or young girls embracing interests that are not often gendered towards women um, and how important that can be as well. Um, Yeah, I don't know. And and the brand has done that in some ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's the character who wants to go to Mars, which, you know, timely, we won't go into it, but, you know, the what do you call it landed on Mars today. So, you know, I don't recall there being as much controversy around a character going to Mars, except it may or may not have stolen the identity of an actual person, which is always bad and should not have happened. Mm -mm. We will be following that. We're not going to report on that until we have more information. But, you know, all to say representation matters and we are unequivocally excited about this development. And if anything, I want to push the brand further. I mean, why is it that to experience queer sexuality, this girl has to leave the United States? Sorry, can't we find that here? Yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to actually getting to read the whole series because I think there are better questions to ask about these characters. Like, are they kind? Are they smart? Right. Are they cool? When you think of like the Jiggy Nye element in this universe it's like there are plenty of cis and heterosexual people in this universe who are problems so if these if these women are generous with their time they seem to be they run you know a wildlife rehab if they're if they're someone who is a good influence in her life it's like that's a better question to ask when we've had you know like we've had people covering up murders in caves and animal cruelty cases so i think this is a positive so much oh my god i mean yeah i think it's a positive and also just to check yourself conservative critics of this whole situation you think this is the first queer character to appear in an american girl property i i i I know please who's gonna tell them who's gonna tell them have you seen the molly movie my god i will say also like a recent icon added to the ag ig world is lesbian kirsten she posts amazing content great stuff 
um, very much appreciating what she puts out there. Samantha in quarantine great keeps it up. You know, it's like there's great accounts where it's like this interesting storytelling is happening with these remixes in the world. So even if you haven't gotten out there with Kira yet, there's there's plenty. There's plenty waiting for you. We can't wait for the Queer Kira account to jump off. Whoever wants to start that, I'll follow you immediately. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait for to see where the storytelling goes and where the social media storytelling goes, you know, the fan accounts, all of it. Excellent. Like, I would do that, but I'm not qualified. Allison. Okay, we can talk <laughs> about the movie now. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. Did I tell you I saw koalas at the San Diego Zoo and they were like the cute, like literally they're so, they're almost like too cute where you're like, this can't be real, right? Like they're not really like that. I I think they are. are. They are. It's like, oh my God. Wow. Wow. You sent me with that. So I will give us the the kind of quick overview because there are things that happen in this film that are different from the overall arc of the books. As always, there is some remixing. There is some differentiations in timeline, you know, in terms of like book versus whatever. I've been doing some homework with Molly Supplementals. I will bring that in. I will help explain a few things. But to start, American Girl on the Homefront takes place in Jefferson, Illinois in 1943. And Molly McIntyre, played by Maya Ritter, and her other friends in the third grade are obsessed with movie stars and their lovely teacher, Ms. Campbell, Sarah Mannion. Molly's world changes when her doctor father, David Aaron Baker, enlists and her mother, Helen, Molly Ringwald, takes a job in a machinery plant. Emily, Tori Green, a young English evacuee, comes to live with the family to escape the London bombings and brings her personal stories. Molly gets a firsthand understanding of the need to sacrifice. She learns to empathize with her street neighbor and Emily, and family support takes center stage. Molly is Molly has determination to be crowned Miss Victory, the lead dancer, despite her lack of obvious talents. I chose to go with like not, you know, like not a producer summary, but a summary from a website for parents because they also give talking points for children. My cat was not interested in hearing these, but I was curious. I was curious how like teachers or how parents have kind of incorporated this film into discussions about the war or not. Got you. 
Yeah, I don't even know. Okay, it's important in light of our just recent discussion that we note that this movie literally opens with Molly like cooing over female movie stars in a movie theater. Yes. And if you watch the trailer, which is not exactly a trailer, it is focused on her love interest, which is Miss Campbell. And the way that she is kind of fixated on this notion of her teacher getting married to this soldier and whether she's going to get to be a bridesmaid. Like in this film, Molly is equally invested in two roles, one of which is this bridesmaid slot. And the second is Miss Victory. And she's like, I will stop at nothing. She she's literally like, I will throw everything I have at both (laughs) of these goals. She is so extra in this movie. It is, like, beyond my comprehension. And I just need to say that there's a scene that literally made me scream, and I had to hide under a blanket until it was over. And that's when Molly and friends are in the soda shop, and they're having a soda at the at the counter. And her teacher and her fiancé, which, you know, difference from the book number one, we meet this man. We do. We do. They're in a booth and Molly's like, oh, my God, like, she's so beautiful. Like, don't you just imagine her wedding sometimes? And you're like, oh, God. And she starts, like, pretending to, like, be her teacher or, like, telling her teacher what she would do if she was a bridesmaid in her wedding and, like, playing this whole scene out, not realizing the teacher has already started walking over to her. (laughs) And then the teacher's like, wow, you deserve a place on the stage. Like, you're so theatrical. And Molly's like, wah. So there's a few things. And I think, like, something that's symbolic of other elements of the film. Molly, as we all know, has a beautiful red bag that she brings to wow. and from I knew school. you were going to lead to. I knew you were going to lead with this. Yeah, because I it's own really it. bothered you. Yes, it really bothered me. Yeah. So there were many ways in which I felt as though this film, this film didn't necessarily take elements of the Molly stories and make it its own. It was like we need to rip her from the headlines, so to speak. Her bag is so cartoonishly large and has a massive see-through element that says Molly McIntyre. She's going to get kidnapped because a man 50 feet away could read her name on this satchel. And it okay, really this me. is when I need to pull you back because I feel like your true crime podcast listening and your true crime reading and your documentary viewing and all of it that has almost landed you to a place of like you could qualify for the FBI at this point. Like you're not an accountant or a lawyer. I think those are the entry requirements, but you could get there. And I feel like maybe like that did not I did not clock that when I was watching this movie. It didn't bother me. What I noticed was I actually felt the material was historically inaccurate. I felt like she would have had different cloth or like something not as loud and something that was more about being durable, perhaps even leather. Um, and smaller. And I don't know if that's accurate or if that's just my vibe that I'm projecting onto this, but that's the only the only clocking of her bag that I did. I don't so, know where you're, how you feel about that, if you're offended now, but I'm just... No, no, I, I do have to be pulled back. There were elements of this that felt like people were putting Molly cosplay into effect versus yes. Samantha, which I felt was sincerely its own kind of product in, in a different way. Like the wig work raised some questions, I think, for all of us. Of course. 
But I think there's something about Molly because she's so much closer to our present time. I was actually reading through the IMDb list of errors in the film and people were Mm. pointing out that there was not sufficient set work done. I feel like Grip, who worked on this film, went and wrote this. It was like there was not enough done to the set and it was like... Any it was like any clown who watches this movie will see that the street signs and the business signage is not appropriate for 1943 and that Molly's shoes are not appropriate. I just want to say if you've been sending me photos of your doll saddle shoes and or shoes that are for sale, thank you. Wow. See, the difference between us is that you want to buy doll saddle shoes and I want to wear like adult size saddle shoes. Yeah. And I do. Um Modcloth makes really good pair, just throwing it out there. Anyway, I literally was like, was this filmed in Stars Hollow or like the same set as Gilmore Girls? Because when her dad takes her on a date, basically, and <laughs> I don't know if that's like the appropriate way to put that, but he takes her out for a special day for her birthday and they end up at a gazebo watching a band play. And that gazebo looks like the iconic Stars Hollow gazebo to the point that I was like Googling, is this like that? And it's not, but... It was so convincing to me. I have a theory. I have many theories about this movie, but one of them is I think the timing of this film being made actually affects a lot of the choices that were made in it. Allison, please stay with me. Now, did I do research about the central part of my theme, my theory? No, I did not. But (laughs) here it is. This movie came out in 2006. I believe that's round about the time Mean Girls came out, if not slightly after. Okay. Okay. My theory is that they had to completely reframe Molly's narrative to make her more of a victim or so that we would we would sort of like empathize with her in a way that you would perhaps not in the books. Mm -hmm. And in order so that you would sort of be rooting for her, which I think is actually a misread of the audience, because obviously we were all rooting for her from the books and we just lived through that. We're actually like Molly was kind of aggro at different moments (laughs) to people who didn't deserve it necessarily, including Allison, who is a very sweet, innocent, well-meaning friend who Molly like convinces her other friends to like literally hide from when this person just wants to invite you over for a party and a play <laughs> date. Like at every turn, people are trying to like like not come at Molly sideways and she's like, "How dare you?" basically. <laughs> and the real conflict in the books is Molly versus Molly. And in the yeah. movie, it's like circumstance versus Molly. Like Allison is actually a mean girl in this movie. Yeah, and I'm just going to say this because obviously no one else will. The wow. Brad erasure is not okay. Brad was needed. What the hell? Sorry, we get Rick or Richard or Ricky or whatever branding we've left him with, but we don't get Brad and his wondrous like questions from nowhere. So something that Molly and her brother have in common in this film is neither of them can read a room. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. So when the family. So there's there's some critical things that are different and and you, you don't need to dwell on them. But I think it does matter for this. The film starts with the family all living together and with Guilford being a very visible neighbor. And we learn two things kind of right away. One of which is that Guilford's son is serving and that she misses him very much. And they're obviously very close and that she is a single mother. And we also learn 
very early, but he waits until after the like father daughter dance that they have by the gazebo. He waits to tell the family that he is actually going to choose to serve, that he is going to go away to serve. So we see him leave and watch him come back by the end of the film, which is which is a pretty important difference. Huge um, difference. They also render the mother a very different kind of character because again, uh, book one opens with like the turn up scene and with Guilford just kind of being part of the family she gets introduced as a caretaker gradually and instead of the mother being part of the red cross she chooses to take on a factory role and yeah yeah i mean we need to back up here because we've just covered a lot of ground i have point one miss guilford the glow up that she experiences in this film is 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 absolutely insane she came on screen and I was like, wait a second. They were like, oh, like Miss Guilford. I was like, pause. Not to take a photo. I was like, that's Miss Guilford? You know I've been clocking these portraits in these books, Allison. And like, yeah, there was a weird shift in one of the books where I got the older illustrations and everyone got a glow down basically and then came back. But throughout, this woman has been like twilight years. This is an yeah. elderly woman. Miss Guilford steps onto the screen and on my screen a couple nights ago, and I'm like, this woman is beautiful. Who is this? And they're like, hey, Miss Guilford. And I was like, er, excuse me? And well, she's I literally, like a peer. She's a peer. And I was like, Anna, this woman is like gorgeous and like the same age as Molly Ringwald. And Anna was like, what are you talking? Like, Anna was like kind of, I don't know if she was with me on that. And I don't really, I think I like took her by surprise with that. Maybe took myself by surprise, but. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for, like, the age shifts that happen. And oh. carrying that theme forward, Mr. McIntyre, that actor, I've seen him in many different things. He does not have any silver, gray hairs, nothing. He has, like, basically the, like, Hollywood version of, like, tips. You know, like, frosted tips? Or, like, <laughs> yes. you know when you were a teenager and you did sun and I was never brave enough no, to do that. No, I wasn't but allowed. Yeah. My brother, Rick, um, who is as extra as Molly's brother, Rick, did do that and they basically did that with him but for silver tips and i was like why are we aging him and is that because we want to make him seem old enough that he wouldn't have been drafted so that you would believe that it's a choice i i'm not sure what they had going on i think they wanted to really signal like that he is like he's a well-established part of the community like he's sort of he does have an older feel to him um well why kind of like he's a doctor like every doctor would have been like if you were within that age range when you could be drafted like he would have been one of the first to go so why age him so that we then have to force we're forced to watch him consciously choose it Okay, but then how could Jill act 45? Oh, my God. Her dad You're so immature. I was like, God, we're all immature compared to you. Jill has, I'm going to say, a pretty significant attitude problem. I'm, I'm going to call it an attitude problem. There's something charming about the way that Molly and her mother relate to each other over the course of the six books and that there's that tension that builds with Jill where they're handling things differently, not necessarily right, not necessarily wrong, but they handle the situation differently. And I think coming off our conversation of how smartly it was handled that Jill feels she had to grow up too fast in the film, Jill's obnoxious demeanor of acting honestly like so fake mature that it it belies what she's going for 
Because she's 14. I think the problem is they didn't actually develop her as a character. No. Which is sort of surprising because they got rid of child who won't be named. So they already cut us down from three to two. Or no, from four to three. Wow, I really did erase him. I'll name you Brad. I'll name you Brad. I have... Listen. Let's not forget Brad. Like, please never forget... The aging of the parents. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, it is. But but my point is, if you're cutting down from four to three, then surely we have enough time because Brad's gone. Like, you can throw a little bit more development at Jill. And instead, it's like she's reduced literally to a caricature of, like, teenage narc who just keeps accusing everyone of being immature by comparison, including her mom. And it's like, what? Like, who? what is the point of this? Like... So I have six pages of notes and then I have headlines. Here's here's what I wrote at the very top. I also have two pages just on Molly Ringwald for other reasons. Of course. I put Brad Erasure, Mm -hmm. Jill intensifies. Yep. Guilford glows up, has a cat, which was notable because it's orange and it's really cute. And then I put power of casserole. Okay, that was a really I ha- I wrote this down in my notes, which are extent notably not five to six pages. And, you know, I just have my own feelings about Molly Ringwald tattooed <laughs> on my heart, but not taken down. But when she says at one point, um, what difference would a casserole make? That stopped me in my tracks. It, it, it actually I I I found that very emotional because I actually think that scene was really good at communicating that like when we don't know what to do for people we try to go for something tangible right and this is a way that we try to communicate something um I don't like casseroles so that to me spoke to me on like a spiritual level where I was like correct I don't like casseroles yeah. So that reached me. And I don't want to upset, you know, Midwestern listeners who think I'm also from the Midwest because I want to be cool like you and like be friends someday. But I don't like certain food to touch. So like casseroles in some situations are my worst nightmare. And I'll just leave it at that. It's not personal. I also loved when Jill turned to her siblings who are children as she is you know, also, and said, you're such a child. Oh, my God. Literally, the only lines she delivers in this movie are, you're such a child, you're so immature. That's all I remember her saying. She also says, if you were more mature, you'd understand. And then when they're all leaving and they're having this, like, tearful departure with the dad, which is where I felt the Brad erasure most acutely, she says, take care of yourself, dad. And that irritated (laughs) me because I was like... She's going to have issues because she's not actually she's not actually taking the situation in and she's trying to be too brave. We made a prediction for Jill's life in the 1950s last week. I'm taking it back. Wow. This Jill is going to be in a sanitarium by 1955. She spun pretty tight in nineteen by nineteen forty five. So like, I don't even know where where she's at nineteen fifty. Like, I worry for her. I don't know what's gonna happen. Cut to Molly, who's both in love with her teacher and obsessed with gender policing, saying to her own mother, "That's not a mom's job." Okay, Molly is out of control in this movie. But just to return for a moment to the scene when the dad departs, I found it was fascinating. They kind of did this like we didn't start the fire approach to covering all of the Molly books in this one 80 minute film where they threw in as many plot lines as they could, (laughs) both from things that are in the movie, in the books and not. 
But it was fascinating to me that we got to like see the dad and sort of see his personality, which is only like we only get through her memories in the book. Right. Because he's already off. Yes. He's been serving for like two to three years at that point. So I really liked that, that like basically you also see him undermine the mom's parenting because in the beginning of the book, it's her birthday it's Molly's birthday. And she's just come from the movies where she's like ogling starlets, but then also sees princess um, Elizabeth and princess Margaret. And she comes home and she's like, listen, had a brainstorm. I know what I want to do for my birthday. It's going to be a princess tea party theme. Everyone's going to come. And Molly Ringwald's like, excuse me. Like we don't have the rations for that. Sorry. And she's like, what? And like, and like sulks up to her room, which like I get it. Relatable content. Then the dad comes up and he's like, what if you and me have a special day? Like, what if I take you out for a special day? And so it's basically like he just undermined the mom having to set like a practical boundary or like a harsh reality. Not to say the mom wouldn't have done something very nice for her birthday. I believe that she would. And then he takes her out for this day to like Stars Hollow and gives her a locket and whatever. But then we see him go off to work. What was fascinating to me in that scene was not only Jill like pretending that she'd been and was like advising the dad, like, (laughs) it'll be okay. Like, don't worry about it. But then when he leaves, he doesn't kiss Molly Ringwald. No. He's basically like, see you around the office. Like, bye. And it's like, (laughs) I'm sorry. You're going off to war. Like, we don't know if you're going to die. And you're like, you know what? I could kiss my wife. Not feeling it. But I think I also projected a very different kind of love match and relationship between them when... So in the Molly books, when she receives the Red Cross doll as a Christmas present from her father, and we learn that, like, he's found a way to communicate, to turn on the radio, there's, like, a a cute romance between him and the mother, thinking of, like, him as someone in the medical field, thinking of her as someone in the medical field. And, you know, like, Molly is both of their favorite childs and, like, all this kind of cool, like, cute energy, Um in this book, he's like, you're my North Star to his daughter. He's like, you're it. He's like, you're it's the just one. you, girl. That's it. You're the one. But that's also mirrored. And this is where I think there's like, like I I would like to sit with a, a professional to kind of go over the script from sort of like a, a psychoanalysis perspective. Yep. That is very much mirrored in the way that it's like Guilford has a crush on her son. Like, I think there's nothing wrong with being like very proud of your children. Of course, they make it weird. Like they make it as if she's obsessed with him to a degree that's inappropriate when it's like, she kind of just seems like she's proud of her son who is really one of the smartest people in the community and now has to serve in a war. It's very weird where it's like, there is a thing with wartime where children are forced into adulthood in certain ways and adults sort of become children, like through fear or circumstance or and whatever. But like, there's something like, I agree with you. Guilford is not weird in her, in her presentation of her affection for her son. Like the way she talks about him is just very like casual, but you can tell she's loves him, but it's not weird where she's trying to make Molly eat the turnip. And she's like, my son loves turnips. And it's not like, oh my God, my son, he's like the most like beautiful person in the world. Like he's like the smartest person. I'm obsessed with him. Like he also loves turnips. She just was like, it was like exposition. They make it weird in the movie. And every like the McIntyre family does not have a sense of like 
how things should be to the point that to your point about Jill at the end, it really struck me when we get like a sea of telegrams in this movie. Yeah. Like Western Union is so busy coming to this house. Like you wouldn't believe it. It's like dad's missing. Dad's declared missing in action. Dad's been found. He's on his way home. And when we get the last telegram, Jill, (laughs) Molly McIntyre, Molly, um, oh my God. Mrs. McIntyre takes the telegram and goes to sit down in her chair to open it. And she's like preparing for the worst. And Jill's like, do you want me to read it? And it's like, no, no one has asked you to do this. Jill takes it way over the top. One of, I think, the most fascinating lines in this film, the the young actress who plays Emily Bennett, she was given like a stack of those keep calm and carry on posters and was like, this is the headspace. Like, dig it, really vibe on it, get into it. When the family is, like, deeply immersed in fear and this possibility that they're going to have grief right around the holidays, she deadpan turns to them and says, it could be fine. <laughs> and this poor kid. Yep. Notably, this is after they are in third grade. Their spelling bee was interrupted. I would say... In a completely oh my God. unnecessary traumatic intervention. So traumatic. Molly and Emily are vying for first place and they're going back and forth. And Miss Campbell gets interrupted and then is like full body heaving sobs at the news of the death of her fiance. We couldn't wait. Okay, this actually made me want to. I didn't have time to do this research, but I did want to do some research because this was the second instance of this we've seen this week. So for those who joined us for the League of Their Own Watchathon, you know that there's a, or if you've seen the movie, you know there's a part of the movie when Betty Spaghetti is told that her husband George has been killed in combat. And it happens when the Western Union guy shows up and he's like, I got a telegram for one of you gals. Like, ooh, these are the worst. I hate delivering these. And he's like, ooh, you know what? I don't have the name of the recipient. Got to go back to the office. And Tom Hanks, like, famously grabs the telegram and, like, shoves the man out the door. And it's Betty's, it's for Betty Spaghetti. Then in this movie, these girls are vying, as you're saying, Miss, whatever her name is, is a judge. And this other, like, goofball guy, administrator, I guess he's the principal, is sitting next to her. And the Western Union guy goes up to the man first. And he's like, hey, got a telegram for, like, this lady. And he awkward, that principal makes the decision to go tell the, pull the teacher aside in front of the auditorium. They're like just to the side and, and like they all tell her and she of course loses it and, and is escorted out. Like where, were there actually etiquette guides for telegram delivery persons? I don't want to say man, but like persons delivering war related telegrams, because it seems like there's a chronic lack of decorum around this and I know that it serves narrative purposes in both I guess like character work like it lets us see Tom Hanks be empathetic in a league of their own I'm not really sure what purpose it served in this movie except to like frustrate Molly that she didn't have a chance to spell mnemonic which it appeared she did know how to spell I don't know I I need to know if anyone out there knows what is the deal with delivering bad news like it during World War II where are the training manuals on going to someone's door with like a killed in action telegram I think too about the distance between that and if you watch the HBO special about I'll be gone in the dark they reveal the fact that Patton Oswalt learned that his wife who is the author of that book that she she but she had passed and their daughter was already at school 
And the principal called a meeting with Patton Oswalt and said, you cannot tell your daughter this while she is in the middle of the school day because she will forever associate the trauma of receiving that information with school. Mm-hmm. And cut to this film made in 2006 where Molly is literally trying to spell the word and they're cutting back and forth between her messing up the spelling, asking for it in a sentence and Campbell full body heaving. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. It is so bizarre. And something that's kind of weird is like, because we've met her fiance in the beginning of the film, it hits harder. It hits harder because you're like, well, I've seen him. Like, even though you're like, this is a movie, it's fake, whatever. There's something about this dramatically where you're like, well, I've met him. And so when she gets that news, like it punches you. And then when it really came back for me was when spoiler alert molly wins the miss victory competition she gets to do the tap solo we'll get to that in a second afterwards um when her teacher is with miss guilford and miss mcintyre they're like oh um where's molly to emily and she's like oh i don't know like i last saw her on stage and it turns out that the dad has returned to see her in the performance like the very thing she dreamed of in the book happens in the movie and um, he, you know, like she comes out with the dad and then Mrs. McIntyre sees the dad. And again, they hug. I don't think they kiss like whatever. But the camera lingers on the teacher's face. And mm-hmm. that punched me, too, because I was like, oh, my God, it's like this beautiful moment of reunion for this family. And it's it punches you because she'll never get it. And Molly has to put her glasses on, as we famously learned, right? Like, Molly felt like she couldn't perform with her glasses because it wasn't part of the look. Like, she needed the curls. But I felt like there were moments where sort of, like, trauma was, like, jerked into the story. But something I really missed was I think there were moments where Valerie Tripp, throughout the six books, made the war feel solemn. And I think Mm -hmm. like one of the places where that was most effective that I really missed, and I understand why it's not in the film, because they're trying to reach a very broad audience. Nonetheless, I think the scene of Molly's family at church worshiping and praying and being really afraid and that being a big part of their Christmas, I think was just a lot more effective for me emotionally and Mm -hmm. those visuals than collapsing Miss Victory with Christmas because it was like very tidy. It was like, okay, we have a show and we have Christmas and everyone's happy. There was something really profound about Molly's mother, especially like having to get them all ready for this big event and just feeling really sad They did a great job in the film with the kids surprising their mother with a Christmas tree. And I I really liked that. But there was something about that that was so intimate in the books. Yeah. And I guess because of the streamlining of the narrative, it kind of felt like all we do is win. Like if you're a McIntyre, all we do is win. Like none of the disappointments that are in the books show up for them in the movie. So in other words, like you know, in the books, Molly isn't Miss Victory. She trains. She's naturally so talented at tap dancing that she gets to be Miss Victory and she trains for it. And then, of course, as we know, she gets sick and can't do it. And, you know, so she's living with that disappointment. And as readers, we're a bit disappointed because we don't actually get to see that moment of reunion when dad comes home. And, you know, and we also see for the people in her life, she, Valerie Tripp actually works in these moments of 
you know, what are going to be permanent challenges for people in their community? So when Grace's father is disabled by war, we don't see those kind of moments in this film or the actual hardships that they have to deal with. There's a brief moment in the film when Molly wants ice cream and the fountain jerk is like, no ice cream today, girls. Like, sometimes it's hard in war. And they're like, what? Like, no ice cream. Like, and he's like, it changes by the day. It's like, literally, that's the disappointment she faces. Because otherwise, like, her dad is home. Mm-hmm. She is Miss Victory. Her dad gets to see her be Miss Victory. You know, like, her mom is fine. Like, everyone in her family is okay. She is okay. And she gets everything that she wants. So the changes in the story for the film, like, you can sort of see why they cut for time. But also, it does seem like... They've simplified the narrative, I think, to the detriment of the young girls who would watch this, who I think could sit with, you know, darker feelings or sadder pieces of the story. So I think a lot, a lot of the plot points for this film, they obviously come from the books. And Valerie Tripp worked with a script editor, the same one who worked on a few of the other films a surprising amount of this film and like specific things related to the plot come from one of the supplementals called Molly Takes Flight. Hmm. Like the whole thing about um, her being the North Star is modified from that story. And the, the central figure, so to speak, of that is we meet Molly's grandparents who live out on the remote farm. If you remember, they had tried to visit at Christmas, but they didn't have the right um, materials to fix their tire. So they go out and they visit and Molly gets to actually go up in an airplane with her aunt who is trying to be part of a a women's sort of part of the Air Force. There's debate. I saw some of this as like the error of the film over how that was actually classified. Um, But she wants to be part of something called the Wasps. And this supplemental book is really interesting because so like one of the other supplementals that was very similar in terms of like how it later got developed is the one about Felicity's new sister, right? Like the birth of this Mm. new sister. This one gets very heavily drawn upon for the film, but basically half of the small book is activities you can do to think about space and aerospace Mm. and like a very detailed history of women who took flight during World War II. And it's kind of interesting because the aunt is actually a pretty important lifeline to Molly. We learn that she's someone that she really connects with in the film. And that came out of nowhere for me. But that seems to have been established mostly in this one supplemental. And I wonder why they did that. Is it because maybe they thought we were all too familiar with Molly's stories? They were going to spice things up with this supplemental is it because this movie came out during kind of a heyday of World War II nostalgia and they wanted to sort of American girlify it by introducing like where girls, air quotes, or women fit into this narrative in a different way, which is like through the waves or wasps in this case? Um, I don't know. A big difference I was thinking about when I was looking at like So when the books were written, the Cold War wasn't over. And when the supplementals in this film were made, the Cold War sort of was over, but the United States was waging other wars in the Middle East. And something I was thinking about a lot is the way that when Molly goes to see her films, she's exposed to newsreels of what's happening in Europe and what's happening with the war and the war effort. And I kept thinking, you know, that is something that has been 
changed, but so completely normalized. I can't think of a time as a teenager and a young person where I didn't see military recruitment right before I saw a film. And if you were seeing an action film or if you were seeing certain kinds of things, the way that that was completely intensified. And I think that is one of the big differences of you know, when these books were being written, there was still this kind of ambiguity and tension around some of the allies and long-lasting consequences of the war. And by the time these products were being made, there's this unabashed militarism, this very intense exceptionalist narrative. And the way in the film, honestly, it was disappointing for me because I thought, oh, the Red Cross work is really cool. They went very sort of... um conventional in terms of what people think about what's a valuable air quotes woman's contribution molly ringwald's character helen goes to work in a factory and she makes engines for airplanes they then introduce a sister who's a pilot her father goes off and is exposed to bombings but those kinds of nuances of like molly trying to learn about scrap completely gone even guilford really mostly being valuable as a character because her son dies in war that's not how she is in the books. <laughs> it's very strange. It, I do think your point about this movie coming out after the Iraq War and Afghanistan um, being a couple years into both of those conflicts, which are, of course, still ongoing. I think it really matters because I think Aunt, Aunt Eleanor becomes more important to the story if part of what you're trying to do is impress upon maybe young girl viewers that like serving our country is a valuable service um, as a valuable act of citizenship or patriotism, then the closest you can get in World War II for female, what looks like military service is, you know, flying um, domestically or flying in the service in those ways that maybe perhaps her aunt did. Um, Also being a parent, a a mother who's willing to lose her son um, if it's in the national interest and a la Miss Guilford. Or, you know, working in a war industry. And of course, that would look very different now. But, you know, those are the three. And as you're saying, it's a very limited imagination of what being a good citizen or a good community member would look like. And I do think, like, there is a lot lost in not having, like, the victory garden or, like, the trying to, like, create scrap or the Red Cross work even, which is about mutual aid, but in a non-militarized way, which I thought actually was really cool. And like you said, built that bridge between the mom and the dad in their wartime service and like being in a medical field. And also like adds greater meaning to Molly wanting the Red Cross nurse doll because she wants like this version of her mom who's a model. I, I, think, a, I think a story that I think just isn't told isn't told very often so people just don't really know about it i've had um you know at other jobs i had an older coworker who was telling me about like the very real fear when he was a child because he lived on the coast and they would see boats pop up and and wondering if they were german and mm-hmm. you know having people in his life having living memories of u-boats from world war one but the way that he and other kids would literally go around and pick up scrap and the way that they would, what we would think of as upcycle or recycle textiles. And the thing that I think was confusing to me visually about the film was the way that it felt like the war was like a really well-funded bake sale. When you think about the, the sort of gatherings they had downtown around the gazebos and the bond drives and the Miss Victory, like it just felt very robustly funded because... 
you know, there is a reality that like with more recent wars, um, service people are not compensated very well, but the actual apparatus of war is very well funded. There's something lost in not actually showing people who are really going through it. And I think it makes what Guilford is trying to do, like obviously it is sort of undermined by the way that Molly is in the first book where she doesn't want the turn up, but it kind of makes her seem like an eccentric, right? Like she's trying too hard to be invested instead of, no, she's like meeting a real need in this community, right? Mm. Like the women who seem to kind of maybe more in touch with reality about the stakes come across as a little bit grating in the film, like Jill and Guilford. And that's kind of an odd dynamic, I think. The film kind of wants to have it both ways. Like certain people who are actually dedicated to the war effort are like eccentrics. And the people who get dedicated at the same pace and in the same way as Molly are like totally (laughs) normal and patriotic. So it is a weird, like, norm setting that happens in this movie. I don't know. Yeah. Odd. Can I tell you something about Molly? Please do. So she's listed as having a supporting role in this film. Molly Ringwald, of course. Um, You know, teen queen. She has given interviews where she talks about how reading is her life. Like, it's very important to her. Um, Her children are also authors, which I think is very cool. That's cool. So I was like, I can't casually dip into this Molly without knowing a bit more. So I was reading a bit of her backstory and watched her episode of Who Do You Think You Are? And it was one of the more amazing, like, quick celebrity 180s I've ever seen on that show because she talks a lot about her parents and her close relationship with her father, who's Swedish. And she says, you know, like, we kind of, you know, there's, like, been some talk that we might be descended from Swedish kings. She's like, it's, you know... It's hard to say, like, we're not really sure. So what she ends up learning, actually, is that her great-great-great-grandparents lived in a mining community and, like, barely made it by. And one of the ancestors she had was twice widowed and, like, very much struggling and somehow made it with her children to Nebraska and ended up becoming a very proud landowner, like this person who really accomplished a lot and was a female landowner at a time when that didn't really happen. But part of why I loved it is I was like, that's such also an American girl kind of story and a very Molly story. Like, yeah, we were probably descended from kings when actually there's a cool story about women and work underlying it. Like this woman who makes it out, she lived in this widow's home, which was really hard for women to actually get out of once they were in there. And you kind of had to live on this very small allotment given by the coal mining company. And somehow this woman became a landowner. Um, You know, do I think the American Girl movie is given as much space as it should in her Wikipedia article? No, definitely not. I mean, we call the editors out there just, you know, do what you think needs to be done. So if you're looking for kind of an uplifting story, I would say Molly Ringwald's genealogy is kind of a haul. There's, you know, stories about a widow's home, but it does it does kind of pick up. You know, this woman does get to be a landowner and she's very inspiring. You might want to watch a teenager like blow out candles on a birthday cake instead. I I don't know. I think that's true. It's interesting that her great grandma or whatever her relationship was to this woman, maybe great great grandma, but that she ends up in Nebraska or the Midwest when then her descendant would become famous for playing like the 
not typical, but maybe ideal Midwestern teenager in the 1980s. So, I mean, there's so many John Hughes moments with her that are iconic. And I think like seeing her kiss Jake Ryan across the dining room table at the end of Mm -hmm. Sweet 16 is iconic and worth revisiting, but also Pretty in Pink, which came out the very same year that Molly McIntyre did, 1986, also very much worth your time and also in many ways a queer film just like this one is. So, you know, you decide. You let us know what you prefer. I'm also just going to spell it out for you. It's Jill and her generation of parenting that gives us the Brat Pack. I'm not going to do math. I'm just making that leap. I feel like Jill could 100% forget somebody's birthday and be like, grow up. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes. 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 Like her, you know, for her like late in life babies are teenagers in the 1980s. Like her older sister has like accidentally takes quaaludes because she has like period cramps on her wedding day and is like totally stoned out of her mind. And then like the like Jill is like trying to pick up those pieces and Molly Ringwald's like, but it's my birthday. And she's like, grow up. Listen, the woman who plays Molly in this film is now a trainer in Canada. Wow. I don't think we can afford her, but I do respect Maybe that. Maybe we can look into it. I mean, I I don't know. Like, she might be biting off way more than she can chew with us in our level of, like, commitment or lack thereof to physical fitness. But, you know, I don't know. We could try it. We could try it, you know. I'm just going to say, Molly Mix, we kind of rethink some of the scenes from the film. We maybe do a light tap dance at some sure. point and we do a little jazzercise through the ages. I mean, I believe that like watching those tap scenes, I was like, I feel like I could do this, guys. Like, buy me some tap shoes. Let's do this. I mean, to be honest, part of the crux of this film is that Molly can't even really do it, but I believe in you. When you said jazzercise, you just made me have like a really PTSD flashback to high school. And where I went to school, the Spanish teacher was also the gym teacher, and she would make you do aerobics every gym class because that was like her specialty. And we had this like boy in our class who could speak Spanish, so she would talk to him in Spanish about us. And I was not a great student of Spanish, so I knew enough to know that she was talking about us, but I couldn't really follow it. And they would just sort of laugh at us and we would all be trying to grapevine and she would like literally throw things at you if you weren't doing it correctly. It was combative. That's all I'm going to say. So like, I don't know, I've yet to like do jazzercise again because it was so traumatic for me, but it does feel like it could be fun. I don't know. Yeah. Zumba feels like too much chaos and I can't handle that right now. So I don't know. That's it. I think Molly's granddaughter would have a Peloton. Oh, yeah. No questions asked. And Molly, who like did not suffer, would be like, you know, during the war, we couldn't even have bicycles <laughs> when like she knows full well that that whole family, including Brad, who I have not forgotten. We'll never forget Brad. Brad, where are you, Brad? He's like, guess what? Guess who's the real lost generation? Brad. Brad. Brad Definitely staying Brad. up all night with a typewriter and some whatever, writing a poem about America. <sighs> wow. Brad, Brad is going to be in some hazes by the late 1950s. Brad's We're going to okay. lose Brad Brad's for a okay. little bit. Brad's not okay. Brad is not okay. And Jill is going to be like, I told you so, but no one is going to want to hear it Jill just like Jill. is going to wear a t-shirt that says grow up. Yeah. <laughs> I want a t-shirt that says grow up exclamation point. 
Jill is in a Facebook group right now as we speak. Jill's favorite TV show of all time is Family Ties. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, amazing. Um, wow. Mary, if, I don't even, you know, I don't know. If if people want to, like, connect with you over Molly Ringwald. Molly Ringwald, Britney Spears, all the greats. You know, I will say, like, having had this conversation, I feel like I want to revise my answer and instead say Lucky is the song that I think typifies this movie. Wow. Just going to leave that She's with you. She's a star. She's a star. Whew. Anyway, um, I think about that music video way too much. If you would like to message with me about Britney Spears, about this movie, about Molly Ringwald, about literally anything, all the ways that Sweet 16 or 16 Candles is actually a, has not aged well in many ways, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 Now, Allison, if people are dying to know what else lies in your five to seven pages of notes about this film <sighs> and Molly Ringwald as a person... Where might they get in touch with you? You can find me at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and Twitter. You can also uh, reach out to the show at A Girls Pod on Twitter or American Girls Podcast. Can take a journey over to our website where we have everything from um, additional resources to check up on, links, you know, um, actual episodes, all those kinds of things. And that's also where you can find our phone number and PO box. And we don't pick up the phone. We don't. You can just leave us a voicemail. Don't panic. Um, and we just want to say we are approaching our own two-year birthday. And we are going to be releasing a very special episode. Yes. So look forward to that. Our pod birthday is February 28th. And that's likely when we'll release it. I love it. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.